the Mormons were thrown into, uh, not you know, not just the Wild West, but they were thrown into among other non-Mormons, and they had to sort of figure out how to deal how to deal with non-Mormon communities, because uh, um, as you know, the Mormons in making these settlements, they wanted to be isolated. You know, they wanted to be, uh, you know, this you know, uh, uh, this is just us, and we'll trade among ourselves, and 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 uh, uh, we'll be in the world, but not of it, but. That just couldn't happen, and, and, and eventually the Mormons had to learn how to get along with their neighbors. It is time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and looking forward to this episode. We're going to be talking with Steve Lesweer. Uh, I know you're going to read the name as you see it uh, posted with this episode and wonder how we got to that. Uh, we'll talk about that name. That name will bear significance within the time that we're chatting today. And uh, he has written multiple books, but will most likely uh, remain mostly focused on life and death on the Mormon frontier, the murders of Frank Lesweer and Gus Gibbons by the Wild Bunch. Uh, I don't know if you get paid by each word in the title, but hopefully you did with a title that long, Steve. Thanks for being here. You're very welcome. I'm I'm glad to be here myself. So let me ask you uh, right away. When we see Frank Lesweer and we see Steve Lesweer, is that the interest? Is that where you got on board? That's a relative of some sort? That's exactly right. Frank Lesweer is my grandfather's older brother, so he would be my great uncle. Okay. And and so we've in our family, we've always known that Frank was killed by outlaws, but to our knowledge, we didn't know who the outlaws were and thought that, you know, they got away, there was no chase for him. And it was just sort of a forgotten, little forgotten episode in Western history. But uh, recently, historians of outlaws in the West have been, you know, trying to track. So, where did the Wild Bunch go? Where was which Cassidy's gang and and etc. And so, I, when I saw that some some historians were saying, well, uh, members of the Wild Bunch were involved in killing Frank, that that piqued my interest. So it was it was the notoriety of the Wild Bunch that said, I said, wow, that's interesting. And from there, I did my research. So let me ask you this, uh, the wild bunch, that's the term for uh, for all that group of outlaws or who is the wild so, bunch? No, that's an excellent, excellent question that that the wild the term the wild bunch could refer generally to um, uh, uh, horses that are hard to train you know, <laughs> and uh, as well as as outlaws sometimes. That, that, and, and so the term wild bunch was not applied solely to Butch Cassidy's gang at that time, or at the time of the murders, exactly, that there were uh, uh, other wild bunches out there. But there was a speech by a Pinkerton executive uh, a number of years later who referred to them as the wild bunch. And so eventually, Butch Cassidy's gang became the wild bunch. And uh, and so uh, I don't know if this is also part of your question, but they were a loose collection of outlaws. It, it wasn't like they got together, formed a club, and all worked together. But Sometimes some outlaws would team with other outlaws on on bank or train heists and, and they would uh, move on. Sort of like you might say, like a, a, a rock band that uh, um, has uh, its uh, uh, musicians ca- kind of going in and out. But sure, you've got this, your front man, but different other people, you know, hit the drums yeah. or play play the backup guitar. And then he goes on to his own solo project. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, and so back to uh, uh, Butch and, and, and the Sundance Kid. Did go on to their, I guess, not solo project, but duo project in South America eventually. 
So uh, interesting that you talk about how the Wild Bunch could identify, uh, you know, all different sorts of groups of people. There's uh, a, a small group of kids under the age of eight in my congregation that hang out on the first three rows in the chapel during uh-huh. our sacrament meeting. We call them the Wild Bunch as well. It's it's oh, okay. insanity. <laughs> so so uh, you, your interest sort of gets peaked because you're like, oh, hey, we knew that this this relative, this great uncle of yours passed away. And there's some, some sort of notoriety around who it might have been. But who are you, Steve, to be like, well, I guess I'll write a book about this. That's awfully presumptuous. Oh, I, I guess so. And, and so I have a background in history. And, and uh, after uh, I graduated from uh, Brigham Young University, I I worked for Lamar Barrett at the Religious Studies Center doing research for him. And then I uh, went on to get a master's degree in history, which uh, was about the 1838 Mormon War in Missouri. And uh, uh, because I'd had some background working with uh, Dr. Barrett uh, in that field or area. But any case, and so that became my first book. I expanded my master's thesis on the Mormon War. And so... um, I hope that's this isn't a shameless plug, but uh, it was a a nice revisionist history that uh, uh, won won some awards and is and although it was published in 1987, perhaps before you were born. Uh, oh, well, thank you. that is very kind of you. Not true, but very it, kind of you to assume it, that. It, that it still holds up. But anyway, so that's that's uh, who who I am or, or why I thought well I could write a book because I'd uh, done so before. Yeah, and we'll leave a link uh, if people are interested in that uh, th- that particular book. There will be a link in the show notes so people can be able to purchase that uh, oh, as well. Just, just as a quick aside, if people are like Mormon War, what 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 if you give me thirty seconds on the Mormon War, what would that be? Okay, so that was when the Mormons uh, were settling in 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 Missouri, uh, in uh, Caldwell and Davies County. Uh, they essentially ran into a conflict with their neighbors. Uh, 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 armed conflict broke out. Eventually, uh, Governor Boggs, the Missouri governor, called out the army against the Mormons. He heard the Mormons were in, in rebellion against the state, called out the uh, uh, troops, and they expelled the Mormons uh, from Missouri. And that's when the Mormons went up to Illinois in 1839. And that was more than seconds, but uh, that's basically it. And where we get the infamous uh, extermination order from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. the Mormons must you know, are, are uh, must be exterminated or driven from the state. And the Mormons opted, opted to be driven from the state. <laughs> yeah, sort of an easy choice, right? Where it's like yeah. perish or, you know, go somewhere else. And everyone's like, well, let's go somewhere else. Uh, simplified, of course, and sensitive to the loss of, the, of all those people. But, I mean, noteworthy in that they were like, let's get out of here. Back to yeah. you. Uh, curious, you know, so so you've got this history past, uh, r- research is being done, made available, and you're like, okay, well, the, here here is the time and the connection to be able to do this, w- what in essence, in some ways, is a genealogical piece for your own family. Did you look at it that way, or was it strictly the history of the project that interests you? It was the history of the project that interested me and, and uh, of, of what happened. But, but I'll have to say that, you know, going in, of course, I'm looking at the murders, but um, I became fascinated by not just the little Swear family, but all of the families that were called to settle in St. John's, because this was just a forbidding desert region. And, and uh, water, water supply was poor. Of course, no electricity uh, or, or any modern conveniences. This was the Wild West. When we think of the Wild West, this, this is where these families were living. So the Lasuer family, the Gibbons family, and others 
uh, or, or just uh, settling. They were called as colonizing missionaries to go there. And it was uh, a brutal, difficult uh, place. And so I became fascinated by um, just what they were doing in their faith and perseverance. Uh, despite this, they, they, um, you know, it was one of those things that uh, their attitude was, well, you know, if, if God has a reason to send us into this cruel environment, he must have his reason reasons. We'll just obey. Yeah. And so they, uh, they, and you said St. John's where, and what, where is that? That's, that's uh, on the Eastern edge of, of Arizona, it's about central, centrally located. Um, so not too far from the New Mexico border. And okay. so when the, when the Mormons uh, or Latter-day Saints first settled there, you can 18- say Mormons for the duration of all this, do not feel like you need to be corrected. Oh. This back then, okay. In this time, they were Mormons, so we'll give the pass, and everyone listening will go, it's Mormons. We're not Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in this interview. Yeah, well, I've already um, uh, resigned myself to, to know that I'm not going to the Upper Kingdom anyway, so <laughs> I'm Mormon. So in any case, uh, oh, what was your question? Oh, where where's it located? And, mm-hmm. and I was going to say, when the Mormons uh, moved into St. John's in 1880, there was already a, a a Mexican-American community living there of about uh, 400 uh, to 500 uh, people. And so uh, there was a lot of conflict because the essentially the Mormons coming in, uh, they were the, uh, the Mexican-Americans were afraid that, you know, they would uh, be driven out or or at least stop from expanding in, into their city, into the town, which, as it turned out, it did. So there was conflict for uh, many years between the two groups. Uh, I, I also, because of the title of the book, and I want to make sure we don't give short shrift to the Gibbons family who might be listening to something yeah. like this. Who's Gus Gibbons? Gus Gibbons, uh, a, a son of Bill Gibbons, and and Bill Gibbons was a very renowned um, uh, missionary to the Native Americans. And uh, But his final, and he was called multiple times to various places, Bill Gibbons was, but his last call was to St. John's, and uh, Gus Gibbons was born in 1874, so he was 26 years old at the time of the murders took place. Mm. And interesting about him, since he's asking about Gus, among the things is uh, he got married in um, September of ni- uh, 1897. One month later, he was called, uh, uh, he left, or rather one month later, he left on a mission to uh, Great Britain. So he was married for a month, gone for two years. He got back in uh, uh, late 1899. So he and his wife were like newlyweds at the time these events occurred because they were just getting reacquainted. So um, it was very tragic for him uh, mm-hmm. as his wife. So uh, the the book is, as you mentioned, as I've mentioned, uh, Life and Death on the Mormon Frontier. Is it uh, just a particular, if people are interested in something like this, is this sort of what... what a, a glimpse into you've mentioned that it's the wild west in the wildest west of definitions. Is it a are we are are we getting the idea of what it would have been like there, or is this just like here are two people killed by the wild bunch? This is what we know about them. Spattering of information. I hope everybody enjoys. Yeah, no, it's it's the former. That as I said, I became fascinated by these people, but I and I thought that that it would be nice to be able to I guess you know recreate their lives or tell readers about their lives such that they could understand the impact of the murders that occurred. So is so that's why it's both life and death on the Mormon frontier, because I talk about their lives before the murders. And then also I spend uh, time afterwards talking uh, about, um, I'll call it the aftermath of the chase for the murders, how the families felt, uh, how they dealt with their grief uh, and what happened to the very, you know, to, to uh, um, 
Gus's widow and that kind of thing. So that's why I call it life and death. I want to take a quick break. When we come back in the second block, I, you know, we're not going to be able to, we're not having uh, Steve read the book to us, obviously. We're kind of just getting, I would have called it Cliff's Notes back in the day, but I guess it's Sparks Notes is what people call it nowadays. But just to get kind of a couple of high lit points that, um, that people can glean from the work that you've done. And then, you know, hopefully we can lead people to, to purchasing and checking out your book. Um, we'll come back. We'll do that in this second block of the Cultural Hall. Best DJ in Utah.com. You're right. It's a new ad. What? Well, it's been an entire season since I've recorded a best DJ in Utah.com ad. And well, the wedding season coming to an end at this point, but not really because what happens now is everyone who's going to get married in 2024 reaches out and says, Richie, is it possible? Do you still have this date? And I tell them, yes, hopefully. And then we get you booked. We'd love to be able to work with you. Uh, travel all along the Intermountain West. Some people call it the Jello Belt. Uh, you can go to bestdjinutah.com to request a quote. You can find us on any of the social medias at bestdjinutah. And uh, we can answer any questions. Affordable? Yes. Over 400 five-star reviews? Yes. Highest rated in the state of Utah? Uh-huh. Go on. It's best djinutah.com and and I'll give you a little hint it it also helps me to be able to do this like financially support the cultural hall through that and you get something in return Hi friends, Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. You can get a brand new PC Laptops desktop and they start at only $29 a month and it comes with a lifetime warranty. Just check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall and I would encourage you to do so in the last little bit. I know times are tight, money... uh doesn't go as far as it used to, but it does go a long way here with us. It First of all, it shows the appreciation you have for the years and years of work that uh, has gone into the cultural hall. But also, we're constantly improving things, trying to make the video streams better and different uh, elements of the product that we put out better. And we can do that if you are willing to to uh, put some money where your ears are. So patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Uh, you can do that. There's a five, a ten, and a twenty-five dollar limit that you can do a month. Love to have you do it. Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So, Steve, um, it seems uh, it, it seems as we sort of okay. So, so how long have you been doing this? Uh, so we started. Let me think about this. We started April of 2011. Was the first episode of the cultural hall. Okay, and so how many episodes? So we, we we probably eight hundred and ninety something. Yeah, so that's where I am about eight eight hundred ninety one. Then I guess, and that's 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 better than my ranking on Amazon dot com. So I'll take it. <laughs> do we do we want to bring up your number on Amazon dot com? Oh, no, we do not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 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 You know what? I'll tell you though. If you want a nickels worth of free advice. The thing that I have learned about the Amazon uh, authorship is what you do is you tell everyone in your life to buy it on one day so that you get an Amazon bestseller on the day. Ooh, yeah, that's that's a good idea. Because they'll do they get they get you they get you the little like uh, thing that you can put on your book and on your site, but you just have to manage it for one day. So that's why pre-sales are a big deal and and all that stuff. And it also then it makes you go, well, wait a minute. 
a, a, a bestseller. What does that mean? It was the bestseller for a day. It quickly takes the uh, wizard from behind the curtain and makes you go, okay, well, not all are the same when we say bestseller. Uh, I, I do want to ask you this, though. Um, you said that there are lessons, uh, things to be learned from these individuals' lives sort of beforehand, during, and then in the aftermath. And I want to I want to go down that path with each of these gentlemen. Um, first with Frank, like what what... What do we learn? Do we gain a glimpse from his life that would be valuable for in our 21st century lives um, from from before, from the sort of during all the turmoil and then the aftermath of, of his murder? Yeah, well, to answer, I, I don't know if I can answer that question. He was just a regular person. Um, it actually caused his family a lot of trouble growing up. Tell me what uh, you mean. Well, he was wild. His father said he was wild and sort of uncontrollable at times. He wasn't specific, specific in what he said. However, I do know that Frank, uh, among other things, was a great horseman. And he liked to, uh, you know, back then horse racing was a big deal. So when the Cowboys came to town, one time he and his brother got one of their horses and trained Frank on it. And, and Frank uh, ran in one of the, uh, or he, they, they didn't run Frank at first. They just ran the horse. But afterwards, some of the Cowboys wanted to race against Frank. And uh, father stepped in and said, no, you're not. And, uh, uh, you know, trying to keep him, you know, trying to keep him away from the cowboy culture and uh, also perhaps trying to save his horse. Sure. But anyway, sort of things like that, that uh, uh, and Frank had kind of a sarcastic uh, sense of humor that um, uh, or call it irreverent sense of humor at times uh, uh, in, in church, uh, according to his brothers. So in any case, um, but otherwise, he was a regular person. And at the time. Uh, that he was murdered. He had a mission. He, he had settled down, I'll say, you know, and kind of come into his own. And he was in charge of his family's sheep business. And they had at least 800 sheep. Wow. And, and uh, he uh, was managing that. And he had a mission call to um, a foreign mission. He didn't know where, but he asked and he accepted, but he asked to wait until his older brother, James, got back from his mission. And so um, so that was Frank at, at the time this happened. And, and I also mentioned Gus who also was, he was a day laborer at the time he um, was killed, just doing odd jobs for his uncle and, and, and others. And, and he was, you know, just coming into his own, so to speak. So lessons learned, I don't think, and not in that regard, I would say uh, when I talk about lessons learned, it's more of, of sort of what we've learned about uh, the outlaws that is new and, and also what we've learned about life in Arizona that's new and, and, uh, um, just, just to mention, you know, the fact that that you know most people are familiar with the Latter Day Saints uh, settling of Utah. You know, we know mm -hmm. a lot about history, but we know very little about Arizona uh, history of the Mormons settling there. But it was very, but it was. It, I found out it's just compelling and just as interesting uh, as Utah, but for different reasons. And and one of them was that the Mormons were thrown into uh, not you know not just the Wild West, but they were thrown into among other non-Mormons and they had to sort of figure out how to deal, how to deal with non-Mormon communities. Because uh, um, as you know, the Mormons in making these settlements, they wanted to be isolated. You know, they wanted to be, uh, you know, this, you know, uh, uh, this is just us and we'll trade among ourselves and, and, and uh, uh, we'll be in the world, but not of it. But that just couldn't happen. And, and, and eventually the Mormons had to learn 
how to get along with their neighbors. It, it's a constant, uh, it seems like, yin and yang within the church. I mean, I think of even in the last 40 years that we've had the, we, like you mentioned, we're in the world and, and not of the world. No, we want to be, guys, we're just like all the rest of you. Come be with us. No, 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 we're very, we want to be isolated. We are the, no, come on, everyone. We want everyone. We still do that today. Yeah. Uh, hopefully with less murders uh, of people, but it seems to me like there would be some lessons in integrating uh, into communities and, and you know, missteps that we could look at from these people's lives in these times that would apply today. Yeah, and and, and finally, they, 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 like I said, they settled there in 1880, and it was, wasn't until about 1886 or 1888, around that time, they started integrating with the community better uh, because they, they uh, both the non-Mormons and the non-Mormon ranch owners, uh, along with the Mormons, had a, a reason to uh, battle battle outlaws and and rustlers and, and cattle, and so they they got together on that item and or that uh, issue. And, and I'll also mention this is this uh, isn't in my book uh, because it was too far afield. But on this idea of, of well integrating with the community, that uh, dancing, you know, the Mormons love to dance and hold dances. And uh, uh, but but the frontier ethos uh, was, well, everybody's invited. You don't hold a party and, and only invites, you know, some people, you know, you, you everybody can come to the dance. Mm -hmm. Well, there is the problem then of of the cowboys who have, you know, they're they're uh, just come off come off the trail and you know been eating dust and beans for a few weeks. And so, uh, you know, they want to let loose at these dances, which mm -hmm. is what the Mormons want. And so they, you know, they had different approaches that in. Um, in St. John's, they finally just said, you know, no non-Mormons, and uh, and that caused some rifts. But in another place, up in um, uh, Snowflake area, what they would do at dances is they had a secret signal that the there was a dance monitor who, you know, monitored dancers and uh, made everything, you know, go smoothly. But in any case, if there started to be trouble, that the dance monitor, who was a Mormon, would uh, had a certain signal, and all the people knew that they would quietly just leave and go get their coats. And and walk away, just mm -hmm. leaving two cowboys there to fight. But uh, um, but if there were but if there was nobody watching, well, what's the use of fighting? So anyway, that was their way of dealing with it. Then another place in southern Utah, um, they had trouble that you know people coming uh, liquored up, and and uh, and so uh, it had somebody at the door to to prevent them from bringing liquor in, or if they smelled of liquor, wouldn't be allowed in. But they're having trouble keeping people out. So finally, they deputized the person at the door. Uh, uh, to arrest anybody he wanted uh, who tried to get in. And uh, so that was their solution was, was uh, uh, we'll just arrest people we don't want. Um, <laughs> all, all to say is, is that the uh, challenges of, of being part of the Wild West uh, uh, among non-Mormons. It seems to me in my mind's eye to be like uh, the, the classic scene from the like 1960s West Side Story where the Jets and Sharks are dancing. <laughs> and so there's the time when the Jets will dance and then they take off the dance floor and then the Sharks are dancing and then there's the tussle and fights to the streets. Yeah. And there was and there was the worry about this, too, you know, that the, the uh, Mormon leaders, you know, didn't want their young people, especially their young daughters, you know, mingling with uh, non-Mormons, though in, in my research, uh, I, I found that a lot of uh, young women married non-Mormons from uh, from that area, now, including um, that uh, one of my main protagonists in my book, Sheriff Beeler, uh, who uh, who led the chase for the outlaws afterwards. That uh, he married Mary Hanlon, who was the daughter of uh, you know famed uh, 
Mormon apostle to the missionaries, uh, Jacob Hamlin. Who has the Amen, missionary to the uh, Lamanites or Native Americans. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, I uh, it, it, the the cross section of religious um, like integration and and segregation is, is sort of fascinating to me. Even when you look at like some members of the Wild Bunch and their ties to Mormonism as well. I was reminded fairly recently uh, about uh, is it it like Butch Cassidy's mom was a member of the church or something like that. Am I am I remembering that incorrectly? No, um, you are correct. In fact, both his parents were. Uh-huh. Um, they, as young children, they came across uh, the plains with their parents. I think, uh, I, I can't remember specifically their ages. I think his mother, Annie, was eight. And I think his father, Maxie, was uh, 10 or 12, something like that. And so they were both, uh, they were members. And uh, uh, and they had 13 children. Uh, the oldest was uh, Butch Cassidy. Actually, their their name was Parker. Uh, Maxie and Annie Parker, and and so he his his uh, Butch's real name was uh, um, Robert Leroy Parker, mm-hmm. and later of course ad- adopted uh, the alias of uh, Butch Cassidy. But he also then had to use other aliases because people knew who Butch Cassidy was. So uh, he had others. Uh, Jim Lowe was a, another alias that he used. So back to your yeah, there were and and there were other uh, Mormons that uh, he he teamed up with. You know, before there was a wild bunch. Uh, one of his, his his cohorts was a man named uh, Matt Warner, and Matt was also a Mormon. Uh, and uh, they robbed uh, the two of them with with the help of of several others robbed the Telluride Bank in 1889. That was his first big robbery. And then there and and there were a couple other members uh, that kind of came in and out of the gang that were Mormon as as well. And then of course the ensuing fight of hey do we pay tithing on the money that we just stole? I'm teasing. Uh, yeah. I think they they paid their tithing to uh, Confederates, uh, uh, so you know people, you know farmers and and other people who helped them hide or or uh, just you know help them out in some way. That they they were they were very liberal in their spending with with such people, and which is why such people also helped them out. So when we talk about uh, maybe the 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 situation surrounding the murders of these two gentlemen, what what do we learn that is significant things that would impact us, or is it just sort of well that is an interesting murder story from the the frontier? Well, let's see. Um, it is an interesting story from the frontier, I'll say, mm-hmm. and of course, just and, and uh, um, uh, cracking down all the sources to really uh, pinpoint where they were and 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 why this happened. But as far as what we learned uh, there, there. I would say there was a couple things. First of all, one of the things is is that that uh, you know there were uh, there was a chase for the outlaws after the murders. That that Sheriff Beeler felt kind of responsible uh, for uh, the fact that these two men, young men, were killed. I can't remember if we talked earlier that that they were that uh, there were sixteen posse members that were chasing the five outlaws. Mm. But at the end of the day, all of the posse men came back except for Gus and Frank. And so uh, then the next day they went out looking for them and they found them uh, murdered. Uh, but in any case, so the sheriff felt responsible and, and, and as did townspeople blamed him as what many townspeople blamed him as well. So he chased the outlaws for about two and a half months, you know, with other posses. And, and so the thing I learned is, is that uh, this, that posses or, or outlaws, they have every advantage uh, uh, in these things. First of all, if they're going to rob a bank or train, you know, they they have, they have the time of their choosing. And secondly, um, in the getaway that um, they, they have uh, horses strategically 
located relay horses so they can gallop fast and get away. And posses, it's not like you see in the movies where posses, uh, um, hey, there's, there's a bank robbery and everybody runs out of the saloon, jumps on their horses and chases them. That no, they, the sheriff has to go around and ask people to join and they've got to finish uh, milking their cow or, you know, doing or getting their mail. And yeah, I'll be back, you know, later. And, and so the posses, you know, often uh, would leave a day after uh, um, the outlaws. So the outlaws had that advantage. They also had the advantage of, of uh, the mountain expanses in the West. There are lots of places to hide. And uh, they also, there was always the threat of ambush. So if you're following somebody, um, you have to be, go slowly and be careful, especially if you're climbing up a, a mountain or a mace or something. And, uh, and that's really what happened to Gus and Frank is they were trailing the outlaws and, and uh, uh, got ambushed because uh, they weren't careful about what they were doing. And mm -hmm. then the final thing, uh, the advantage the outlaws have is that they have the Confederates who, who will help them hide. So back to your question of what do you, what do you learn? Very, very hard to catch the outlaws. Though I will also say that they all eventually get caught because it's like you roll, you know, you roll the dice and eventually they're going to come up snake eyes. And then mm -hmm. so, you know, that's what happens with the outlaws is, is uh, uh, one, one bad break, one mistake, and, and they get caught and killed. Now, where, uh, this, is, where this is a relative uh, of yours, your great uncle, uh, what do you feel like um, some people, when they talk about books like this, they'll talk about that, you know, that they, they felt some sort of spiritual connection to the other side, uh, being led by that individual who has already passed on, um, inexplicable uh, circumstances where something was found or led towards a particular thing. Were there spiritual experiences in the researching and writing of this that that made you feel like this was something beyond yourself? Well, um, in a way, yes. I didn't feel like you know the the uh, um, uh, they were in the uh, spirit world uh, guiding me or anything like that. Uh, mm -hmm. But but I did feel. A very strong connection to the people and not just to my family as i mentioned earlier all of these people that uh what they went through and 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 uh you know they made mistakes and and you know they uh not everything they they did was right but they were good people and they were striving and i was just fascinated by uh by that and and that helped drive me and um i'll also mention um uh not uh to get not to get too far into my book but but also um I do talk in, in my afterward to sort of personally about what happened. And, uh, and there's a book called um, Work, Work of the Dead. And uh, it, it talks about how um, we as humans care for the, care for the dead body. It's, and so it's about the physical body. This, and, and it's how we, we make monuments, you know, gravestones, uh, uh, lots of things honoring the dead. And, and also it's, it's sort of uh, humans, we can't stand the idea of a dead body just laying around, you know, just mm -hmm. like, you know, in the military, nobody gets left behind, you know, that you you go after that, uh, you get the body. Uh, and and so that's the reason why, um, like in, in uh, uh, what, uh, uh, in Mogadishu, when when one of our uh, soldiers was, was uh, killed, and then he was dragged around uh, dead, you know, uh, by a jeep or uh, truck, it just uh, devastated us. We don't, we don't like that. But in any case, the work of the dead. And then I thought, well, that's what genealogy and the Mormons are doing. They're doing work for the dead, mm -hmm. but it's the same kind of concept with, that we care for them, just like we uh, care for uh, the dead bodies and work for the dead. And then finally, I thought, well, the work of a historian, I'm, I'm really recreating their lives as well. And, uh, you know, just like 
you're familiar with familysearch.com, correct? Of course. Yeah. So, so there's a website where, where, um, you know, Mormons, uh, uh, you know, put up their genealogy, but as it turns out, well, we can also put up photos and, and newspaper articles and letters and, and reminiscences. And that's what people are doing. And so it's not just a genealogical site, uh, to verify that so-and-so was born on a certain day and died on a certain day and that it's, uh, Latter-day Saints are recreating the lives of loved ones on that site. And that, in a sense, is the work of a historian, uh, you know, if he or she is working on a biography, you're recreating the lives of people. And so in that sense, uh, I say that they dwell in us and they do and they dwelled in me in, in writing this book in the sense that I was moved by uh, by their life, life histories. Let's take another break. When we come back, there's uh, three questions we ask everyone who steps in the cultural hall. I'll ask those of you, uh, plus a couple other that I want to pick up before I, I allow our time together to expire. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. I had an email from someone who listens to the cultural hall. I believe it was a not a lifer, but a convert who said, hey, Richie, are you still teaching the podcast classes? And the answer is yes. In fact, I have even fine tuned it more than I ever had before. So you might be asking, well, Richie, how do I get in on that? Well, you can always email contact at the cultural hall dot com or you can find me on social media wherever I'm at. Richie T. Stedman and reach out and say, hey, I listen to the cultural hall. I would love to learn more about podcasting or your podcasting services, a class, a cohort. There's a group of people. I've even taught uh, the ward historian about podcasting, what it is and how it might be a great benefit to people. If that's something that you're interested in, whether it's for your business or just for your private hobby, maybe something you see your future in, would love to be able to help you along the way. You can find me again anywhere on social media, Richie T. Stedman, or you can uh, just contact us, contact at theculturalhall.com. Look forward to hearing from you. Let us podcast together. To be clear, this is still a show. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember if you have not yet left a review for the Cultural Hall, you can do so wherever you're getting this episode. Most people do those on Apple. You can say things like, Steve Lesweer, the best guest ever. How have you not listened to this episode? You can leave that review. Uh, go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts or, again, wherever it allows you to leave a review. Even if it's just stars, it helps us to get be uh, in the ears of other people and the attention of other folks who, though we've been doing this for 12 years, go, the Cultural Hall? I've never heard of such a thing. What is that? Uh, be sure that you leave a review. Um, Steve, let me ask you, is there... You mentioned that there is more information that has been available about the Wild Bunch, certainly about your your relative and and other individuals as well. Are there particular um, like um, so? Let me let me give you the adjacent of what I'm thinking. So we've gained a lot more about Joseph Smith because of the Joseph Smith papers. We've gained a lot more about immigration and a lot of records because uh, of all of the things from Ellis Island being available genealogically. Is there something similar within the Wild West that has recently been made available that allowed you to do the research that previously wouldn't have been able to be done? 
Well, um, uh, the movement of of a lot of documents online. So, mm -hmm. so I was able to do uh, a lot of my research at home by uh, contacting various archives and saying, oh, would you have any information about this person? And the same with court records. I, I, I had the name of somebody and said, do you have any, you know, uh, was he in jail or, you know, do you have anything on him for these years? And so that was important as well as, as I mentioned earlier, familiessearch.com is just a, a treasure trove of information for a historian. You know, uh, um, of course you've got to check things out and make sure that information is correct. But, um, but again, familysearch.org, not available to previous researchers. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, my we talked just briefly about the first book I wrote back in the 1980s. And so, uh, you know, a whole lot different uh, um, uh, experience uh, doing this research. You know, I still I still went out to the church archives and I and BYU Special Collections, University of Utah and into Arizona uh, and other places, uh, you know, physically went there and physically uh, went to the. Uh, site where they, they were murdered uh, but um uh so in any case i still ha you still have to do that as a historian sure. but you can do so much much more online and 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 i'll just give one brief example newspapers well in the old days you know you'd have to go in and look at it through microfilm or you know something and and uh and even if you had the physical newspaper you had to read through the whole newspaper to to find the what you wanted if there was if there was anything there but with uh, websites like newspaper.com and, and others, I can pull up an article and uh, and do a search for a name, Butch Cassidy or Frank LeSueur. And and so that saves me a lot of time uh, uh, reading through hundreds of newspapers where, okay, I, I, I found the 20 uh, uh, instances where, where this is mentioned. So anyway, though, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So not maybe one singular event, but the advent of the internet and digitization of of records allows you to be able to do it sort of quicker and and like you mentioned from the comfort of your own home. I'm always curious about stuff like that because I know that like there are different projects that are being done genealogically and otherwise where to a certain group of people they're like we couldn't even imagine getting beyond our grandparents and now because of this you know, the church in this area allowed their records to be made available. So I just was curious if there was something along that line. Um, you uh, you mentioned that uh, you that you attended the Brigham Young University and then sort of off mic, you, you talked about serving uh, a mission for the church. You were learning about these um, great sacrifices uh, of the individuals in the time to go and to serve and to essentially pioneer these communities. Uh, you yourself uh, at, at one point, uh, a member of, of the church and, and still currently or taking a break or not for you or where are you at as far as that goes? Well, first of all, how dare you ask me that question? <laughs> oh, Steve. Yeah. But but um, glad to answer. So so, yeah, I, I was very brought up in a devout Mormon family and uh, um, went to Brigham Young University, then served a mission to Norway Uh in 1972 to 74, so quite a while ago, mm -hmm. and uh, then came back to BYU to finish my degree. I studied psychology and history, and uh, but during that time, I guess I'll, I'll call it, I uh, had a crisis of evidence versus faith and uh, of some of the things that I saw and read, and so um, I opted for uh, evidence, and uh, and so uh, essentially left the church, but I still consider myself a Mormon. Sure, uh, and and not a Latter Day Saint, but I'm a Mormon, yeah. and uh, um, and 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 I'll, 
uh, I'm not a believing Mormon, but a, a Mormon. I'll, I'll just tell you one instance. Um, I've never been on the record on this one, but anyway, uh, you know how the bishop or home teachers would call uh, where I live, right, you know, once a year to find out how am I doing and do I want, want to come to church? And mm-hmm. and uh, so in one of the calls a number of years ago uh, from the bishop, I explained my situation that that uh, I really wasn't a believer and wasn't interested in attending. And and uh, um, and he said, well, you know, we can take your name off the records if you want, you know, if, if you know, if you, that's your feeling. I thought about it just for a moment. I said, no, don't take it off because. I'm a Mormon. I've always been a Mormon. That's who I am. I'm not a believing Mormon, but I'm a Mormon. So, yeah, hopefully that answers your question about. Uh, yeah, I, who- yeah, I think it's significant. And it's, and it's interesting to me, the people that are like, well, but I need to. There's this tiny box, Steve, and I need you to either be in the box or I need you to be out of the box. And I and I just I always I, I appreciate your uh, pretend outrage about asking the question, too. <laughs> I think that it's something that in order to, as a society, be able to, like, be civil to to one another, there are conversations I think that we have sort of outlawed, now, no pun intended in using that term, yeah. from conversation, but that we just need to be able to be like, yeah, okay, evidence-based, and that was the conclusion that you came with? All right, that's great, and, you know, very successful life for you, and I don't have any sort of, like, you know, pat you on your head or be any sort of condescending. It's like, great, a life that you picked, the agency that we were promised, good for you, awesome, I'm doing the same thing. Don't begrudge me, I don't begrudge you, and then we can move past it as opposed to, you know that thing we can't talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I do know, and, and it's the same with me, it's all, when you meet another Mormon, it's always on your mind of, hmm, are they active? Or, <laughs> and, and, and if they are, then you, then, uh, the Mormons immediately get into discussion of who knows whom and who's related to whom. And <laughs> I, was, I was in St. George at the same time your great grandfather was and that kind of thing. Yeah. Because so, there's so many community connections uh, among the Mormons, which yeah. is its, one of its strengths is, is that community. Yeah. You know, uh, as we sort of look towards the end of this, uh, a shout out to uh, Lily, I think is her name over there at Coford Books. Uh, tremendous job in connecting us. It is Lily, right? I got that yeah. correct. Yes. Yeah. In in doing what they do, they have so many great projects that have been the source of a lot of great connections for us, speaking of connections, to be able to do episodes. Um, everything that we mentioned, uh, being able to, um, you know, familysearch.com, the different places to purchase your book, those things will be in the show notes as well as a little bit more about Steve Lesweir. Uh, although uh, not a believing Mormon, there is a question that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall that I would still ask you, and I would ask you to interpret this question however you like, but the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? My favorite part? Well, I'm an atheist. So my okay. favorite is that uh, um, I try as best I can to uh, accept this world and and deal with this world in evidence and facts and uh, and uh, not just jump to conclusions, not just about issues of faith, of course, but politics uh, and and other things. Uh, um, so that so the favorite part of my faith is is uh, is trying to see the world through uh, in a rational way, sort of like uh, Thomas Paine who. Uh, you know, the famous author uh, who wrote uh, the book, The Age of Reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
You know, uh, again, this may be a question that I, that I, uh, whatever, I'm going to ask it. I don't need to preface it. Some people that I've talked to whom have left the church who served missions have interesting feelings about reconciling, spreading the gospel that they no longer believe in. Has that been any sort of thing for you? Um, No, uh, not really. That, that, that I enjoyed my mission so much. Uh, or enjoyed is the wrong word. It was a tough mission, mm-hmm. but I felt like I gained so much from my mission. I had good feelings about it. Mm-hmm. And and given that it was Norway, there weren't that many people that were converted that uh, I would feel bad about, you know, like I, would, I need to go back and say, well, now I no longer believe. So, so uh, that was another advantage of going to Norway, I guess, is nobody listened to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's just an interesting conversation. And for whatever reason popped in my mind and figured since the rapport that I feel like we built, I could ask you that in you know, true curiosity, because I've heard it all over the spectrum from people who are like, you know, people, I respect that people were able to choose that in that time. And other people who, as you sort of alluded to, have gone back and said, hey, I taught you this. I don't believe this anymore. And you need to know this is why I don't believe this anymore and everything in between. And I just. Yeah, I never. Yeah, I didn't feel compelled, just like I don't feel compelled to tell you or my brothers and sisters or others who are mm-hmm. believers of, hey, I don't believe this and you shouldn't either. Same mm-hmm. with that, that actually my wife and I have been back to Norway uh, on several trips. And we always we visit uh, a couple that I, I, I baptized and stayed in their house and and then also um, um, met with a, another young man that uh, I helped convert. And and we all get along well. And that's and, incredible. Uh, it's fun to go. And, and it's fun to go back and, and try and talk Norwegian with them. Yeah. Try and uh, knock the old dust off the uh, Norwegian as you make yeah. your way back there. Uh, the name of the book is Life and Death on the Mormon Frontier, the Murders of Frank Weir and Gus Gibbons by The Wild Bunch. You can find a link for it in the show notes. Our guest is Stephen Lesweer. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, uh, for sharing all that you have shared. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.